Hello there and welcome to Voicebox, KLW's weekly show all about the art of the human voice and the best of the vocal music scene from the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Chloe Veltman. Thanks for joining me. A few years ago when I was in Berlin visiting a friend, I heard a CD playing in her apartment that stopped me in my tracks. It was a recording of a woman singing He Was Despised from Handel's famous Messiah Oratorio. Now I've heard many people sing that aria before. It's not really my favourite as it can be deathly slow and singers tend to lay the emotion on thick. But the interpretation that I listened to in Berlin made me hear the song anew. The singer performed it with a depth for feeling that almost brought tears to my eyes. And as moving as this piece of music was, she also sang it in a very understated and unadorned way. Here's a snippet from the version of He Was Despised from Handel's Messiah that I heard that day. If you've just joined us, welcome. This is Voicebox on KALW with me, Chloe Veltman. Now, I wonder how many of you can identify the singer on that track we just heard. It was Lorraine Hunt-Lieberson singing He Was Despised from Handel's Messiah. The recording comes from the Handel Arias CD, which the American mezzo-soprano made with the Philharmonia Baroque Ensemble based here in the Bay Area. The CD, which is one of my most treasured recordings, was released in 1994 under the Harmonia Mundi label. It was also the very recording that had so transfixed me in Berlin a few years ago. And ever since, I've been listening to Lorraine Hunt-Lieberson's voice and wishing I'd heard this miraculous vocalist sing when she was alive. Born right here in San Francisco in 1954, the singer died of breast cancer at a very young age in 2006, at the age of just 52. I've been looking for an excuse to pay tribute to my favourite singer ever since I launched Voicebox 16 months ago, and at last it appears I've found one. The Philharmonia Baroque Orchestra has just come out with a recording of Berlioz's Nuit d'été and arias from several of Handel's operas assembled from the live recordings that the ensemble recorded with Hunt Lieberson in the 1990s. The Berlioz and Handel CD is the debut album from the orchestra's own Philharmonia Baroque Productions recording label. And with me in the studio to discuss Lorraine Hunt-Lieberson is Nicholas McGeegan, Music Director of the Philharmonia Baroque Orchestra. Hi Nick, thanks for joining me in the studio. It's great to be here, thank you. So on the phone the other day, Nick, you told me a lovely story concerning a performance of The Messiah, the iconic work from which we played a track just now, which you conducted at the St. Louis Symphony and with Lorraine as a soloist. I guess that work has a special significance for you when you think of the vocalist, right? Well, yes, this was back in about 1986, and I had played Messiah very, very often, but I hadn't actually ever conducted it. And it turned out that Lorraine had never sung it. Uh, we'd both somehow managed to avoid it, and so we were Messiah virgins, as it were, <laughs> and we, we collectively broke our duck 
uh, with the <laughs> St. Louis Symphony. And it was amazing because the orchestra doesn't necessarily look forward. Any orchestra doesn't necessarily look forward to Messiah. It's one of those things you would do every year, like playing Nutcracker. And it's, and you, at least with Nutcracker, you might have 50 performances or something. Messiah, you get three or four, so you don't get tired of it. But on the other hand, it's something you've done every year. So there they were, the orchestra of mine know well and knew well then. Uh, and I said, and we've got this soprano coming and uh, let's have one of her arias. So she began to sing and you could just see the faces of those musicians completely transformed by this magnificent singing. And um, people would come up to me and say, she's absolutely stunning. Thanks for bringing such a lovely person. We never thought it would be like this. This is marvelous. And uh, this is more or less from then on the effect I felt that she had on just about everybody who heard her sing either live or as in your case, on a recording. Right, well, that's a wonderful story. And you also mentioned when we were listening to He Was Despised just now that that, that recording was done in one take, right? Yes, it was part of a Messiah recording that we did uh, in Hertz Hall in on the Berkeley campus. And we we played each part through, and then we did corrections. And then we did all the other bits of Messiah where Handel had alternatives for all sorts of arias within it. He rewrote about a third of it for different singers. And Lorraine was at those days a soprano rather than what she became with a deeper voice, the mezzo-soprano. And at one point, Handel had transcribed he was despised for a higher voice for the soprano. And that is what Lorraine sang. Uh, and it was right almost at the very, very end of the sessions. We had 15 minutes to spare, and that aria is about 10 minutes long. And she began it, and we just didn't stop till we got to the end, and it was what you hear. Normally, a recording, a CD, is made up of lots of little edits to take uh, little imperfections out. This is just as it was in the concert. So, incidentally, is the Berlioz and recording. That's uh, live. Well, that's really great to know. I mean, I'm already in love with that recording, obviously, but now it makes... I'll listen to it in a, with even a, with different ears once again. So it seems like Lorraine's voice, has, as you said, has this amazing impact on many people. I thought we could listen now to a couple of contrasting tracks that show how Lorraine had total command of the music, whether it's a fast, virtuosic piece with lots of complicated runs or something extremely simple. <laughs> Triumph for the court, 
On tonight's Voice Box here on KLW, we're looking at the peerless voice, an amazing though sadly short-lived career of Lorraine Hunt-Lieberson, an American mezzo-soprano. With me in the studio is Nicholas McGeegan, music director of the Philharmonia Baroque Orchestra, based here in the Bay Area. Nick's organisation just released a CD of archival recordings of Lorraine's interpretations of music by Berlioz and Handel. We just heard two tracks that provide a taste of the emotional and technical range of Lorraine's voice. The first was the show-stopping aria Con Lalli di Constanza from Act One of Handel's Ariodante. And the recording features tonight's guest, Nicholas McGeegan, conducting the singer with the Freiburger Baroque Orchestra. The second track we heard was the heartfelt aria Bistou by Mir, which comes from Bach's Anna Magdalena notebook. Tonight's guest, Nick McGeegan, was playing the harpsichord in that recording. Nick, these two pieces are very different in character. What do they tell us about Lorraine's remarkable abilities as a singer? Well, she had the full, total range of emotion. I mean, all the technical command, obviously, you heard in that Ariodante recording, it's got more notes in it than is perhaps good for it. It's a virtuoso piece. Uh, so clearly, you know, her technique was flawless. Uh, and she just exudes joy. Uh, you don't get the sense that, 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 that it's really difficult. It sounds as if it's the most carefree thing, which is exactly what it's supposed to be in the opera. She's a lady, well, actually she's a chap in this particular case, uh, who's in total love with the prospect of matrimony. And she's, uh, that's all going to go totally wrong in the second act, of course, otherwise it wouldn't be an opera. Right. Uh, and it does end happily in the end, of course, but only just. Uh, so this is the, the joy, and you could sense that immense joy with this virtuosity. Then there's Bistou Maimir, which is, you know, some of the hardest songs to sing are the simplest. And that is an extraordinarily simple tune with uh, several verses. And she just, it's just all heart. And uh, again, you don't sense the artifice. There was no artifice. Uh, and I had the good luck in the case of the Ariodante to be standing there waving my arms around conducting it in Germany and we'd actually done it on stage and she, uh, Lorraine was a stunning performer on, as an actress she was great too she was actually in this case playing a, an, uh, a sort of medieval Italian hero and then Bistu Maimia this beautiful sacred woman's song uh, totally heartfelt and that was recorded up at uh, uh, Skywalker Ranch, in fact, George Lucas's fantastic film studio um, up up uh, on Lucas Valley Road. So that has good local connections. Well, let's talk more in depth about Lorraine's voice as the show goes on. And we'll turn our attention right now to talking a little bit about her life. Your relationship, Nick, with Lorraine extends back to the mid-1980s, That's right? That's right. I'm, I missed out on the first part of her career, which was when she was a viola player in many of the Bay Area orchestras. As you mentioned earlier, she was born in the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. uh, her mother is a terrific Gilbert and Sullivan singer. Mm -hmm. She was an, an alto, right? An alto, alto. yes. Mm -hmm. And her, her stepsister, Shirley, is a super cellist, uh, who I think was brought up in LA, but lives up here now. So very strong Bay Area roots. And she was an instrumentalist who could sing. And then she went off basically to the East Coast, to Boston to uh, learn the craft and art of singing. So uh, everyone who has been in the Bay Area since the mid-70s knows her as a string player, who, who then sort of rather like some kind of wonderful caterpillar went off to 
to a cocoon state in Boston and came back as a butterfly. And I've only known her in the butterfly stage as the singer. And she came uh, to sing with us many times as a soprano in the 80s. And then by about 1992 or three, her voice had moved downwards. And she then began to sing more and then exclusively as a mezzo soprano, which is what most people know her as. And when she sang at the Met, she was a mezzo. But when she first began, she was a soprano. And can you tell us about your first encounter with her? How, did you hear her through a recording first of some kind? Or how, what was your My was first your meeting first with meeting? her was in 1985 at the Boston Early Music Festival, uh, which was in Boston, obviously. And we met, and I didn't actually hear her sing then, but later in the summer, in Purchase, New York, there was a, uh, um, a festival of three Handel operas. Uh, one was uh, Handel's Theseus, Tezio, which the Boston Early Music Festival did, and which I staged and conducted, which was in Baroque-style production with fake candlelight and all that sort of thing. The next production was done by the music critic Andrew Porter, who used to write for The New Yorker, um, South African music critic. And uh, he staged... Uh, a Handel opera, I forget which one it was, but more in a sort of traditional, normal operatic production, not trying to be historical, not trying to be too out there. And the third production was Julius Caesar, staged by Peter Sellers. Mm -hmm. And that was the radical, wild, wonderful production. It was absolutely glorious. Uh, I remember it was set in a hotel in Alexandria, and the orchestra pit was the swimming pool. Uh -huh. And uh, Cleopatra looked very good in a bikini. And uh, the, the role of Sesto was sung by Lorraine. And she opened her mouth and I was totally sent. tonight's edition of Voicebox. Nicholas McGeegan, Music Director of the Philharmonia Baroque Orchestra, is here with me in the studio for a look at the voice and career of the late mezzo-soprano Lorraine Hunt-Lieberson. The track we just heard featured Lorraine singing Svegliatevi nel core from Act One of Handel's Julius Caesar. This was a major turning point in the singer's musical career and the track comes from the Philharmonia Baroque Orchestra's CD Arias for Durastanti. In the early 80s, the iconoclastic stage director Peter Sellers was making a name for himself for mounting radically contemporary productions of Handel operas. He set Orlando at the Kennedy Space Center, for example. And Lorraine, who had moved to Boston with a boyfriend of hers who was playing in the Boston Symphony Orchestra, was at that time playing the viola for the orchestra at Emmanuel Church in the Back Bay neighborhood of Boston, which had a substantial music program under Craig Smith. And she must have been doing some singing too, because when Sellers and Smith were looking for someone to sing the role of Sesto, the vengeance-crazed son of Pompeii, in a new staging of Julius Caesar, Smith suggested Lorraine. 
Her portrayal of Sesto, which, Nick, I think you saw and I talked saw, about, yes. yeah, in 1985 at the PepsiCo Summer Fair Festival in Purchase, New York, was this major breakthrough performance of hers. And I read in Charles Michener's great 2004 profile of the singer in The New Yorker that Lorraine's final decision to turn her career full-time to singing happened in 1988 when someone actually broke into her apartment in Boston and stole her viola. And that was that. <laughs> well done to the beef, I say. Yes. So now Sesto is a trouser role for a female singer. Nick, can you talk about Lorraine's affinity for trouser roles? Well, if you sing mezzo, you more or less have to do them. Uh, originally in Handel's time, there were male sopranos and altos, and I don't mean countertenors. I mean permanent ones. Uh, they'd been fixed. The castrati. The castrati. Um, luckily, we don't have any of those around now. Uh, but Handel... Uh, if he didn't have castrati singers, he would very often write these male roles for female singers to sing. He didn't use countertenors in opera. And ladies generally loved playing what we call pants roles because it's the only chance they got to, to show off their legs. <laughs> because otherwise the dresses were like huge great sofas that they wore. And so they could be rather like those of you who are familiar with English pantomime, the pantomime dame in English pantomime is played by a man and right. the principal boy is played by a beautiful girl in white tights right? pretending to be a young boy. And here is Sesto, who is maybe 16, being played by a lady, um, gets to sing very strong music and Lorraine was perfect for it. She, as you mentioned, switched from being a soprano to a mezzo. Can you talk a bit about that switch, how it really affected her career, what it did to her voice, apart from made it lower? Apart from made it lower. <laughs> well, one thing, of course, is that it meant that she did play a lot of pants roles. Right. She got to sing, uh, first of all, Sesto, and then uh, she sang um, the composer in Ariadne of Naxos. She sang Ariodante for me. Uh, so these are all male parts. And she still had a, a really terrific top A, for example, in Ariodante. But she didn't really want to sing up to a top C, although I'm sure she had it. Mm -hmm. um, but she had such a rich voice. And it was particularly rich in the lower end of the mezzo's range. She was never what you might call an alto. Mm -hmm. She wasn't a deep, deep voice. It's the, literally a mezzo-soprano, halfway between. And that's a, a range which Rossini loved. Mozart wrote some terrific roles for in Clemenza, uh, for example. And um, Handel, of course. So she... Uh, it opened a whole range of repertoire which was not the sort of Tinkerbell repertoire at all. This was much more serious and often more emotionally searching. She still continued to sing soprano on occasions, though, right? She's obviously still capable of getting up there. Uh, oh, certainly. Yeah. I mean, luckily, with the stuff we did with Philharmonia, she was singing it at a lower pitch because Philharmonia plays a half step down. Right. So it makes it a little easier. Yeah. So when she did Messiah, she was singing soprano, but she only had to sing a modern top A rather than uh, modern top B flat. Okay. And the sum of the soprano part is not that high anyway, so yeah. it was fine. Okay. Well, let's listen now to a couple of arias that illustrate Lorraine's command of, of the entire range 
Verse will hear, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, from a performance of Handel's Messiah featuring Lorraine with Nicholas McGeegan and the Philharmonia Baroque Orchestra. And this aria sits quite high up in her range. The second aria, Qual Leon, from Handel's Ariana, shows off the singer's lower range. The recording comes from another collaboration between the vocalist and the Philharmonia Baroque Orchestra, Handel Arias for Durastanti. tonight's voice box all about Lorraine Hunt Lieberson, the greatest singer who ever lived, in my humble opinion. We just played two contrasting arias showing off the vocalist's soprano abilities and then her skills as a mezzo. The first track was Rejoice Greatly, O Daughter of Zion, from a performance of Handel's Messiah featuring Lorraine with tonight's in-studio guest Nicholas McGeegan and the Philharmonia Baroque Orchestra. The second aria was Qual Leon from Handel's Ariana. The recording comes from another collaboration between the vocalist and that orchestra, Handel Arias for Durastanti. Nick, when we were talking about Lorraine's voice on the phone, you spoke about how distinctive it was, and I asked you if you'd be prepared to compare it with other great singers' voices on air, and you brilliantly suggested that we do a bit of a blind test to see if you can indeed distinguish Lorraine's voice from that of a few other vocalists. So let's give that idea a whirl now, shall we? Okay. Here are three versions of An meinem Herzen, An meiner Brust, from Schumann's song cycle Frauenliebe und Leben. After you've heard them all, Nick, let us know which one, the first, second or third, was Lorraine Hunt-Lieberson. And if you can guess the names of the other two singers, then you win extra bonus points. If you're listening in at home, in your office, on the bus or in your car, feel free to play along too.
Tonight's voice box. I'm in the studio with Nicholas McGeegan of the Philharmonia Baroque Orchestra. We're in the middle of a game. I just played three versions of An meinem Herzen, An meiner Brust, from Schumann's Frauenliebe und Leben song cycle. Only one version was performed by Lorraine Hunt Lieberson, the subject of tonight's show. Nick, was Lorraine's version the first, second, or third track we heard? Well, it wasn't the first, right. and it wasn't the third, because that sounded like Kathleen Ferrier to me. All right. And it was certainly the second. And it's interesting that she played Ferrier, because that is the voice that I think is most like Lorraine's. Partly, I think, it's because they were two singers who had meteoric careers that ended far too soon. Uh-huh. Yeah, and you're right. I mean, that's absolutely correct. Uh, you guessed Lorraine Hunt was the second track and then Kathleen Ferrier, indeed. Who was the first? The first was Jesse Norman. Ah. So there you go. Well, fantastic. Well done. That was fun. Um, so what was it like to work with Lorraine? I gather she had quite a big personality. Oh, sure. If she didn't like something, she'd tell you. Yeah. On the other hand, if she was having a good time, the whole room was full of sunshine. Mm-hmm. Uh, luckily, I almost always saw the sunny end of it, so it was fine. Uh, was she was she ever a diva, or ex- exhibited diva-like behaviour? Not in the divary sense that you know today's that she would measure if there was another singer there and they both had limos that her limo was slightly bigger than the other one. She wouldn't have cared at all about that, or mm-hmm. making sure she had the right brand of honey in her dressing room and. Uh, <laughs> That sort of thing. She, uh-huh. she didn't care about those. There are some very petty singers out uh-huh. there. Um, and she was not at all like that. She cared deeply about the music. And if there was something I think that she felt was clearly getting in the way of a good performance, she would be very anxious that it be dealt with. But it wasn't this sort of either diva one-upmanship against her colleagues she was definitely part of the team mm-hmm. um, and that is a great thing in, in singers and yeah, I can honestly say that the really really good singers mm-hmm. are like that yeah and the and the the B team ones are so often the ones who are difficult huh okay uh, because they think that's how you become that people will think you're a great singer then and actually the really good ones uh, Frederica von Stader to name a local yeah. Bay Area favourite is absolutely marvellous. Yeah. Uh, Zheng Chao is absolutely marvellous. It's not about the hair and the tiaras and making sure that the sun shines only on you. In my experience, Lorraine was one of the nicest people in the studio. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about your new recording and this whole new label that you've started. Why are you bringing this particular CD with Lorraine's music out now and and why did you start this record label? Well, two things. First of all, uh, along with most other orchestras, we record every concert or at least every performance uh, each work that we do in every set of concerts for the archives. 
And this means after 25 years or so, or 30 years in the case of Philharmonia, you've got a very large archive of performances. And some of these are just too good to, to let lie fallow. Some of them are less memorable, or they're memorable for the wrong reasons. Like, that was the biggest audience cough and sneeze I have ever heard in my life, and we have it all preserved on tape. Lovely. We had one of those quite recently where a chap just snorted and snuffled his way through some of the quietest music I've ever heard. Thinking of sending it to him, actually. <laughs> a little memento. A little memento of his bodily functions, uh, <laughs> so that he can see how much he annoyed everybody. Uh, but to speak seriously mm. for a minute, we had a number of performances of Lorraine's that were just magical. She had recorded in the studio, but we, this was the live performance, and a live performance is always more engaging than a studio performance. It's the difference between a butterfly that's flying free and one that looks lovely in a museum case with a pin through it. Right. The recording is always dead, mm -hmm. uh, and the, the live recording is always alive. alive. Mm -hmm. It may not be perfect, but it's, it's there. And these recordings of this handle was only done once. Listening to Voice Box on KALW. I'm your host, Chloe Veltman, and I'm in the studio with Nicholas McGeegan, music director of the Philharmonia Baroque Orchestra. We're profiling the late, great mezzo soprano Lorraine Hunt Lieberson. I just played a track from the Philharmonia Baroque's newly released CD of archival recordings made with Lorraine in the 1990s. We heard Le Spectre de la Rose from Hector Berlioz's Les Nuits d'été. Now, your new CD, Nick, also includes some versions by Lorraine of Handel arias, as you mentioned. And the singer's fame as an interpreter of Baroque repertoire owes much to her experiences with you. What qualities in particular made her such a great Baroque opera and oratorio singer? I think one thing was a complete, I can only describe it this way, as complete honesty. Mm -hmm. She, While she is singing that aria, she believes the sentiments that are being expressed and is able to communicate them. You don't care whether that person is an ancient Roman or the Queen of Bithynia who might seem to have somewhat exotic problems compared to, to ours. As far as listening to the aria concerned, here is where she's playing a man, a man, or she's playing a woman who is in a particular emotional situation and she's telling you what it is. And the way she does that, you can tell what it is. Mm -hmm. um, and that is a great gift. It's not just about singing. Yeah. It's not just about a beautiful voice. It's about communication of emotion and through the voice. 
And she was also adept at performing repertoire from other eras, of course, beyond the Baroque. We heard her amazing rendition of uh, Berlioz just now and then the Schumann song cycle a bit earlier. Um, she was very well received in a Boston Lyric Opera production of Bizet's Carmen. And when she made her Met debut in 1999 at the age of 45, it was as Myrtle Wilson, the mistress of Tom Buchanan, in John Harbison's opera version of The Great Gatsby. And the composer wrote the part of Myrtle specially for the singer. One of my favourite of Lorraine's recordings from the contemporary repertoire is Five Neruda Songs, a song cycled by her husband, the composer Peter Lieberson, based on the love songs of the poet Pablo Neruda. There's an intensity to her performance which is absolutely spellbinding. Let's hear a movement from Five Neruda Songs now. Voice box. We're dedicating our hour together to the life and times of the superlative mezzo-soprano Lorraine Hunt-Lieberson. I'm in the studio with a conductor who worked extensively with a singer in the 1980s and 90s, Nicholas McGeegan. The piece we just heard was Amor las nubes a la torre del cielo from the song cycle Five Neruda Songs. The work was composed by Peter Lieberson, the husband of the singer. It's um, interesting, I heard an anecdote um, that apparently... Peter Lieberson before he he never even heard of her before 1996 and I think it was Stephen Wadsworth the the director gave um, him a recording of her voice as a to sort of suggest her as a, a cast member for his first opera at Santa Fe a shocker's dream I think it was called and um, apparently he listened to this voice and she said and he said my goodness she's so beautiful and he hadn't even seen her he yeah. just had heard that voice you know yes. and just and projected it onto mm-hmm. a whole person well and then there she was This is Voicebox on KALW 91.7 FM, San Francisco. This is Voicebox. I'm Chloe Veltman, and that was Lorraine Hunt-Lieberson singing the opening aria from Bach's Cantata Number no. 82, Ich habe genug. The recording was made by Lorraine with Craig Smith, the director of Boston's Emanuel Music Orchestra. With me in the studio for a discussion about Lorraine's voice and career is Nicholas McGeegan of the Philharmonia Baroque Orchestra. Nick collaborated with the singer on many occasions in the 1980s and 90s. Now, when I hear Lorraine sing that song, my eyes sometimes well up with tears. It's not just the beauty of the vocalist's voice, but what the aria signifies in terms of her life. In 2002, Lorraine sang the Bach cantatas in a monodrama staged by Peter Sellers. And for Ich habe genug, she donned the hospital gown and medical tubes of a woman who is terminally ill. Lorraine dedicated that performance to her younger sister Alexis. She'd nursed Alexis during the final stages of of her sister's losing struggle with cancer. And a few months before Alexis died in 2001, the singer herself was diagnosed with breast cancer. 
And on July 3rd, 2006, she died of complications from that disease at the young age of 52. Nick, it seems like Lorraine's death hardly made a blip on the broader public conscience. She didn't have the celebrity status of, say, a Rene Fleming or a Yo-Yo Ma. How was the news of her passing received in classical music circles? Oh, it was a very, very sad day. Indeed, we all sort of flew our flags at half-mast for a very long time. We'd known to some extent that it was coming, of course. It wasn't as if it was a sudden plane crash or something like that. Um, and sadly, uh, Peter Liebes and her husband has also been very ill. So um, it's uh, it was for those of us who'd worked with her and also for those of us who'd just heard the CDs, the Bay Area, of course, felt it particularly keenly because she was so beloved here. But she wasn't, as you say. She'd sung at the Met, but she'd sung less often, perhaps, than some of the more flighty stars uh, at opera galas and things like that. Uh, she had given some marvellous performances. She played, as I remember, in the Coronation of Popea at the San Francisco Opera, and she'd sung with the symphony and so on. But she was uh, she was much beloved more by the connoisseurs, perhaps, than the ones who just like the, the rhinestones and the glitz. The critic in The New Yorker, Alex Ross, called Lorraine the most remarkable singer that he'd ever heard in his obituary of her. And, of course, as you mentioned, Ross wasn't alone in thinking this of the singer. But, you know, it, I think you've touched upon this. I mean, were there any other reasons why Lorraine Hunt-Lieberson didn't have the fame of some of these other well, singers I that she deserved? She, you know? she didn't chase after that sort of fame. She had no press agent. She didn't have a press agent who said, you know, now, dear, stop singing this classical music. It's time for your crossover album. <laughs> um, and you can see the singers who do that. I don't need to name them. You can see them one after another. And usually those CDs are in the remainder bin remarkably quickly. But they do get you uh, a certain sort of surface fame. Mm -hmm. And she wouldn't go that route. She wanted to stay to do the music that she wanted to do and to be in charge of her own career uh, though I must say, had she appeared on The Muppets, I'm sure she'd have been terrific. <laughs> well, our hour is almost up. But before we say goodnight, Nick, I'd love for you to share one more anecdote, perhaps, about Lorraine Hunt-Lieberson with us. What's your most important or treasured memory of her? Uh, she had a, a laugh that I will never forget, which was quite raucous. Actually, it wasn't a sort of little girly titter. I've had it described, uh, I've read it described in the media as a bray. Absolutely, yes. You'd have thought, uh, you know, you could always tell if Lorraine was in the room and somebody had told her a story because even if you were 30 feet away, they said, ah, that's Lorraine. <laughs> it wasn't a sort of little, as I say, a little sort of little giggle. She let forth when she laughed and she laughed with as much passion as she made people cry. A larger than life personality with the voice of a goddess. Well, thanks so much, Nick, for sharing that. And thanks for coming out to KELW to chat about the amazing Lorraine Hunt-Lieberson. It's been a lot of fun discussing this great singer's life with you. My pleasure. To find out more about tonight's guest, conductor Nicholas McGeegan and the Philharmonia Baroque Orchestra, which is based right here in the Bay Area, please visit the organisation's website at www.philharmonia.org. Voicebox is produced at the studios of KALW in San Francisco. The series producer is Seth Samuel, the web editor is Victoria Lim, and the membership and development director is John Bischoff. 
Voicebox can only exist with support from you, our treasured listeners. To find out how you can become more involved with Voicebox, including how to make a tax-deductible donation to keep us going, please visit our website at voicebox-media.org. Voicebox is now available as a free weekly podcast on iTunes and via voicebox-media.org. And if you live in the Bay Area, you can find out all about what's going on in the local vocal music scene by checking out our weekly online events listings. Oh, and please friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And you can also write to us anytime at info at voicebox-media.org. On next week's show, we'll be revisiting one of our favourite programmes from 2010, all about the relationship between singing and keeping fit. If it weren't for catchy songs, visiting the local gym might be even more of an ordeal than it already is. Feel the pounds fly off as fitness instructors Matthew Perkins and Timothy Clark join me, Chloe Veltman, for a chat about how singing while working out provides the perfect antidote to boredom on the treadmill. We'll be limbering up in our sweatpants at 10pm sharp next Friday here on KALW, so join us or drop and give us 20. I'll play us out with one of the most affecting performances of an aria that I ever heard. Here's Lorraine Hunt-Lieberson with When I Am Laid in Earth from Dido and Aeneas by Henry Purcell. Have a songful week. <laughs>